Hi, my name is Bruce Perham. Welcome to my podcast series, Trauma from the Frontline. In this series, we'll be interviewing a wide range of people that work in the frontline industries who will be sharing their professional and personal thoughts and ideas about working in the field and some of the challenges that they all confront. Hi there, this is Bruce Perham. Welcome to my podcast, Trauma from the Frontline. Today, I have Dr. Susan Jones with me. Dr. Jones retired after working for 31 years in Colorado Corrections. Dr. Jones began her career in corrections in 1981 as a community corrections counsellor. In 1985, she entered the Department of Corrections as a correctional officer at the Fremont Correctional Facility. She then moved up through the ranks as a sergeant, lieutenant, administrative manager, associate warden until her appointment as warden. Dr. Jones was the warden at the state's facility for offenders with mental illness, a woman's facility and a state supermax facility. She retired from the position of warden in July 2012. During her career, she has worked with male and female inmates and at all custody levels. Her assignments included training programs, custody control, administration and case management. Dr Jones has a bachelor degree in behavioural science from the University of Southern Colorado, a master's degree in criminal justice administration from the University of Colorado, Denver, and a doctorate from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Dr Jones believes that the challenges faced in the criminal justice system can be met by prepared employees that are given the tools and encouragement to provide the leadership necessary to change the system. Welcome, Dr. Jones, from now on, Susan. Um, Can't thank you enough for agreeing to uh, be interviewed on my podcast. Now, that is quite an extensive um, history of working in corrections and obviously at all different levels. Um, I thought maybe if we just started from the beginning in terms of when you first started working in, in, in the corrections industry and maybe uh, just sort of walk us through some of those early impressions of um, uh, of working in corrections. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be with you guys today. First of all, I think it's important to understand that I started in community corrections, and I it's a halfway house type system. I don't know exactly what terms are used throughout the country and throughout the world, but I started there because I was fresh out of my bachelor's degree, I had a bachelor's in social work, basically, behavioral science. I was 20, 20 years old, 21 almost, and I was going to change the world. And and I believed I could do that, right? <laughs> Good on you. And I'm not saying I didn't make <laughs> Yeah, I'm not saying I didn't make changes because yes. I certainly did. But I, you know, remember when you were that age and, you know, I thought I was – I was what this state needed, right? I was going to fix the system. So I started in community corrections with that attitude. And I know people listening are probably chuckling because what they expect to happen happened. I got chewed up and spit out a couple of times. And, and you know, I, I grew up in Western Kansas. And now I'm in this city working in community corrections, learning things I'd never even heard of before, even after completing college. And so it was a really kind of rude awakening. It was kind of, it was a hard four years. So after four years, I decided I got a little bit more realistic. Not only did I want to do work somewhere that mattered and change the system, which I think I did in the little ways, maybe in some big ways, but I also needed to have a decent salary and a retirement at the end. So because of that, 
I went to work in the Colorado Department of Corrections then because community corrections wasn't a state employment. It was actually a contract to the state. So I come to work in the Colorado Department of Corrections just kind of after those things I've talked about, including a retirement, a decent salary. And unbeknownst to me, this this was not the plan. I mean, I certainly knew about it, but I started interviewing for a job at one of the facilities, and I figured out eventually when they hired me that I was a mass experiment in our country, in our state. I was going to be one of the first women we put into housing units in our system. And so what Colorado decided to do in 1984, 1985, was they were going to hire one woman for each facility and put that one woman in a housing unit and basically prove to everybody this can't work here. That's That was really the goal. And so I walked right into this, and that's that's the position I took in our Colorado system. Well, long story short, we have women working in virtually every job imaginable now in our system, so obviously it did work. But, but it, was a, it was a rough 18 months as an officer, I mean, because I was fighting everybody. My, my husband was actually an officer at the time, and he joked around with people while I was in the academy and before I actually even started that I was going to come in and start kicking ass and taking names, and then I was going to go to work on the inmates. And that's kind of what happened. You know, there was so much resistance to women going into this last Pulled out place in our system, the housing units, that it was, it, like I said, it was a rough 18 months as an officer in those housing units. But, you know, looking back on it, you know, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have done that any differently. Not that I chose this particular challenge in front of me, but now we have women working in, like I said, virtually every position you could think of, including probably every housing unit in the state. Mm. So tell us a bit about the housing units, um, Susan. Uh, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about them. Well, you know, sometimes they're called cell houses, cell blocks, you know, where the inmates actually live, where they dress, where they right. shower. Up until that point, Women were allowed in a few positions, quite a few positions, but none of them were in those kinds of areas. We had women in the on the perimeter, in the visiting rooms, in control centers, that type of thing, but not in that last piece. So now you've got women coming in and working in those areas. And of course, we made some changes with privacy screens and that type of thing. But but like I said, it, w- it was tough. Yeah. It was really tough for a lot of people. Where, where did, including me. Where did the yeah. resistance come from? I mean, what was the the nature of the resistance to, you know, women being in those positions? Well, the resistance came 90% from the staff and maybe 10% from the inmates. The inmates didn't like it either, obviously, at, at first. And then they, they figured out it wasn't that big of a change, really, from what they were used to. But, but the staff were really resistant to this because until this point, and each state that went through this, the same kinds of stories you'll hear, up until this point, women were um, officers, and they were being paid as officers because, you know, the Equal Pay Act was already on the books. Mm-hmm. But, but they were really second class, and they were not, they didn't have the promotional opportunities in front of them because they didn't have the experiences that everybody else had. So now we've kind of done this huge step towards leveling this playing field, and it, and it changed our system pretty dramatically. I had a sergeant on those first nights on graveyard shift during the night shift in that cell house. 
a sergeant in the control center called me. He had been on his days off, or maybe he was on vacation the first week I worked there. He calls me up and he says, and I'm not going to use the profanity he used, but there was a lot of that. He just really wanted to make sure that some of the rumors were true, or actually he was hoping they weren't. He wanted to know if it was true that I had worked in community corrections. So I had four years of corrections experience, right? Mm -hmm. He wanted to know if it was true. I had a master's degree in criminal justice and he hung up, hung up the phone. And and so I called him back and I'm like, what is, what is your problem? And he goes, oh, well, well, they're just saying we're all going to be working for you one day and, and string a profanity about why that wasn't going to happen. Right. Wow. So, so there was a lot of fear there was a lot of fear that now we're going to be working, I don't know, for a bunch of hormonal women. I don't know exactly how to put it into perspective. But so, so it was that kind of hurdle right from the beginning. And that, that was tough on all of us. It was tough on me. It was tough on my husband. And it was tough on a lot of my friends that we had, you know, both in the system and outside. So, so in some ways, was that, uh, how would you put it, a challenge to the status quo that the, um, oh. the prisons had run um, you know, and often it's referred to here as the boys club, but that, um, the prison had, prisons had been run in a certain way and that, that some people like yourself were a threat to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's exactly what it was. The good old boys club that if I can do the same job they can do, then it, it almost took status away from some of the men I worked with, not all of the men, lots of the men I worked with were great. But, but the resistance, it took status away from them because this job can be done by a woman. And then, oh my gosh, I might do it differently and get the same or better results. Yes. You know, and that, that was the real, the real challenge, if you will. Then I, I just go on a little bit further. I, I was only there three or four months and I, no, I was there almost a year. And I took the next promotional exam, which was for sergeant. And I had just gotten out of a master's program, right? Um, written, written test, and re- reading, that comprehension comes really easy to me, right? So this written test for the sergeant wasn't very um, intimidating to me, right? Well, so I go into this room with two or 300 people, and I end up coming out in the top three in our state. And when that happened it was really kind of a shock to that, that pocket of resistance still, but not only can I do the job in some ways, maybe better, or at least as efficiently in a lot of ways. Now I'm a real threat to the supervision. Now I'm a real threat to, Oh my gosh, I am going to be working for her one day. And that, that caused a huge stir. The fact that I was by that time pregnant with my first child working as an officer, and that was the first time we'd ever had a pregnant corrections officer in a men's facility. That didn't help matters. So I was like this whole this whole basket of controversy <laughs> for like two years at least, right? Everything I did, everything I went, you know, it was just it was it was tough. It was tough, but I survived it, and I think our system is better for it too. By the way, and like I said, there were a lot of men who were very supportive, but. There was a lot of people that were very, very angry and upset about the challenges that just by me being and working and being there, it, it kind of forced that kind of to the front of the framework, well, it, if you will. It's almost like a, a whole new world that no one saw coming. 
Yeah. And 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 just a question. A very. This is a very general um, uh, statement from me. But often when you know I talk to female officers, they'll talk about um, what's the word? You know, bringing compassion into the system or bringing a level of caring. Now, it's not that men don't do that. You know, some officers, male officers do do that. But that generally that was seen as unhelpful, unhealthy, um, and really uh, have copped a lot of uh, negativity towards showing caring towards the prisoners, you know, in terms of you're going to get done in, you'll get manipulated, you'll get... So a lot of female officers have shared that they've, they felt they had to bury their emph- em- empathy to be able yeah. to fit within the existing um, uh, culture. What's your thoughts on that in terms of what you, you uh, witnessed firsthand? Well, and I think you kind of summed up 20 years all in a couple of sentences there because in the beginning, for the people that were opposed to me being there, there wasn't anything I was going to do that was going to make them my friend. Okay. Yes. That just wasn't going to happen. So, so I was able to bring some of those increased communication skills in, maybe talk through some incidents that may have required force in other situations, maybe approach something from a different way and get the same outcome done. And a lot of the women that came in in the eighties were able to do that because again, they weren't going to make friends, Right. What happened, though, as in the 90s in Colorado and lots of places in the United States, the numbers of prisoners increased dramatically in the 90s. So we started hiring people and building prisons and opening prisons. And so the numbers of officers increased dramatically, including female officers. And that's when that second part, you said, really kind of came to play. Now I am going to be part of the team. And to be part of the team, I have to stuff all those things that make me a woman away and not really um, let people see that part of me. So what I started to see, and I saw evidence of this all the way up till I retired, although not from everybody, is a lot of the women that maybe had some of those different kind of compassion skills, I think you called it, you never saw it because it wasn't socially acceptable and they had to be somebody they weren't. So we thought in the 80s and the early 90s that if you introduce women into corrections, what that's gonna do is it's going to decrease uses of force. It's going to decrease some of the violence because women have a way of communicating that's different, right? Yes. I had a couple of inmates early on tell me when, when an incident was going down, they, wouldn't, they weren't coming to attack me. They were coming to tell me, you need to like, basically get in the office and hide so we can protect you type thing, which, of course, isn't what I did. But it was kind of that they, they saw me differently than another officer. In the 90s, and especially in the 2000s, now we have officers, men and women, they're, they're acting alike. Women, like I said, are kind of stuffing some of those skills. And we have men that are great at some of these skills, and they certainly stuffed them. And so it became uh, like it didn't even matter that we put women in. It, it was just another body kind of thing. And I don't want to make it sound dis- disrespectful to the people working there. But the culture was so intense that we had to, in a lot of cases, we had to pretend we were someone we weren't. Yes. And look, it's interesting, Susan, you know, that, um, you know, it certainly has happened here that that move away 
over the last 20, 30 years from physical force being the way to run a prison to having to do things very differently and um, and the emphasis on communication and communication skills uh, has certainly happened here and, and it's been challenging, you know, because a, a lot of um, officers haven't uh, grown up with um, or needing to communicate. And so I, I can really understand how, um, uh, you know, people coming into the system maybe with more skills in that area would, would be, in a way, it's turned out the way to go. You know, it's more about communication now than, than anything else. But it's still in its infancy, isn't it? It's still that culture here is still very strong about that you don't show emotion, you bottle it up, you, you know, plough on. And, um, yeah, so what, what, as things evolved for you, you know, in particular, I'm interested in your thoughts around the mental health of officers and that sort of exposure to trauma, which is so inherent in, in, in what you do. Well, right. And one of, every time I talk about trauma, I have this little ball on a string I use and I let the ball go from one side to the other, like the pendulum that we've all heard about, Right. We go from rehabilitation all over to punishment, and then we come back to rehabilitation, and this ball just does this continually. And so through our careers, if you spend more than five, maybe more than 10 years in this business, you're going to see that shift, right? Well, I grew up kind of thinking this ball went from one side to the other, just kind of smoothly. Well, what I know now is this ball doesn't go smoothly at all. Every once in a while, something comes in, whether it's a lawsuit or a, or a inmate advocate group that's really powerful, whatever it is, and it kind of kicks that ball. And all of a sudden, we're slamming it to the other side. So, so what happens when you think about this pendulum ball not going smoothly but being jerking from side to side, what happens to the people that are trying to work in this environment is a story you don't hear much. Mm. You know... I had people in the warden of our supermax facility at the end of my career, great people that maybe didn't believe that 23 hour lockdown was the way to go. But they also understood that if we're going to change this, we need to change this in a manner that no one gets hurt, right? That both inmates and staff have time to adjust. Well, we don't have time to adjust in this system, mm. in, in this agency. I've never met someone in any agency I've ever talked to that says, oh, yes, we give staff and inmates all the time they need to adjust to changes because that, that just doesn't happen. So now we have these staff and inmates, too, that these staff that are just trying to figure out what the rules are today. Right. And and I'm going to get to mental health in a minute. But but even if you have an incredibly stable, healthy outlook on life, there's just not a whole lot of jerking around you can take without it wearing on you. And, and I, unfortunately, COVID gave us great examples of that. You know, all of us now, not just people working in prison, but all of us got to see the effect of the rules changing every day. And, and I have a lot of staff, a lot of friends that still work in our system. And, and I would talk to them about what was going on, especially during COVID. And it was like, the entire rule situation changed virtually every day. So now think of that ball that's not smoothly going, but is actually being kicked or hit every day or every shift. 
And in the middle of all that, yes, we were worried about a communicable disease. Yes, we were worried about the health of the inmates who had, they couldn't go home. They couldn't choose not to come to work or come to live in the prison, right? So so I'm not, not trying to disrespect those levels of concern, but now you have the staff that is just trying to figure out what the rules are today. And by the way, where am I going to get toilet paper on the way home, right? So, so what we've gone through in the last four or five years has hurt our staff to a level that nothing else I can even think of has done before. Mm. And then, of course, what we've seen, at least in the United States, and I don't know if the same thing happens in Australia, is we've seen people leave the work in droves. People with 10, 15, 20 years in are resigning, and they're going to work at Walmart or McDonald's or whatever it is, right? So, so now you've got all this experience going out the door in numbers we had never seen before. So what? who's left? The really new people and the people that are really close to retirement, they have to hang on. And now what we're doing is we're working those people to death. Mm. You know, to have worked 16 hours in a row, four or five days a week is now the norm in some places. Not, not the exception, the norm. And so who have you got working those kinds of hours? You've got people in their 50s that have no, no business working 16 hours in a row, more than maybe once a year or once a month or whatever. So you've got this incredible strain on people. They're not getting sleep. They don't have support. The rules are dramatically changing. They don't have enough staff. And in the meantime, you have all these pressures also for what's going on outside. So as if the mental health concerns of corrections officers was not a serious concern before, once COVID hit those facilities and and our countries, it it just made it so much worse to where now we've got staff that, that it is no, I, I can still, I go, I still live in prison town, Colorado, right? I go down to the local grocery store. I still have staff come up to me in the middle of the grocery store with people wandering around and start telling me basically about their suicidal ideation. Mm. (laughs) I'm just like, whoa, you know, I haven't seen you in five years. Here we are in this public place and we're talking about something we would have never talked about before. Not that we shouldn't have when it was there, but we would never this openly talk about depression or suicide or anger issues or, you know, whatever it is. So this whole idea of the mental stability of our staff has just taken hit after hit after hit in the last four or five years, particularly. But that doesn't mean there weren't mental health concerns or emotional concerns before COVID hit. Because again, we're talking about people who work in an incredibly dangerous and unpredictable environment to begin with. And then you add this whole other level to it. Mm. So, so do you think, Susan, that you know, in a way, everything you've said has got a lot of um, validity here? And and uh, a couple of questions: Do do you feel that the authorities, uh, prison authorities, recognise that that currently they're on a road to nowhere? That you you've got your experienced officers leaving, and uh, I think that's pretty much the same here. That have had enough. Um, are burnt out or, or correction fatigued. Um, no one can really argue over the last 20 years I've had adequate support or anywhere near adequate support for the level of, mm-hmm. of trauma exposure. That COVID just came on top and people just started to think, 
okay, uh, there's other things to life out there other other than doing these. Right. And then to, to overload the staff that are left, is there an awareness around right. that this is a crisis, that this isn't going to well, re- resurrect itself? I, I just want to add one more thing. You talked about overloading the staff. The other thing we did in this country and many agencies in the beginning was we dealt with the staff shortages by locking inmates down. They, we took away programs. We took mm-hmm. away volunteers. We didn't let them out of their cell unless we had to kind of thing. And so that created this whole other crisis if you're brewing yes. because inmates that have earned that kind of freedom now had it taken away overnight. So you've got these two competing mm-hmm. crises, if you will. So, so back to administrators, do they know they're on a road to nowhere? I have got to tell you, and all the people I run into in town, I can't tell you the last time I talked to anyone that I would call an administrator. But I would, I don't know if I would love to talk to him or it'd just be too depressing. I'm not sure which it would be. But I can't even imagine if I was still at work. I always tell people retiring when I did was one of the two or three smartest things I've ever done in my life, right? Getting out before COVID, for instance, was brilliant on my part. Of course, you know, I didn't see that coming, obviously. But but this idea that we're trying to run a facility, when I was a warden, when I was an associate warden, I thought we were going somewhere. I thought we were doing positive things and keeping staff safe and making inmates for the future and maybe they won't come back to prison. And, and I believed that kind of thing, right? With Even as the warden of Supermax, I believed that was the goal and we should all be kind of going that way. I can't even imagine what administrators have to be feeling now because there's nobody at the helm of one of these places that has to believe what I just said. I mean, just based on the hundreds of, of their employees I have talked to over the last several years, they, they can't believe that, right? Mm. Now, I'm not saying they don't make it sound good because I've seen the news reports and whenever we get a new executive director for the state or a new governor, the, the rhetoric is still there, but, but they can't actually believe that's what's going on inside their institutions because the resources aren't there. You know, I talked to an officer... This was before COVID hit, so just put that in perspective. He had just finished the corrections fatigue class, and I was doing coaching on the phone with him. And in that agency where he worked, they were working massive amounts of overtime two or three years before COVID hit. And he had told me on a previous phone call that he normal, and he's in his 50s, he was like 52, right? He normally worked two double shifts a week, and one of his days off, right? And he was living well on all this overtime pay, and he was actually putting his kids through college debt-free, so he was he was happy about that. But he told me, he goes, I'm going to have to cut back because I can't keep doing this. And I'm thinking, yeah, I would think so. But then, so we had a week in between our phone calls, and he put it off a week, and he calls me, and he said, you know, I had to you know, reschedule our appointment because they sent me to a class to be an instructor for trauma-informed care. And he goes, I'm so excited because we're going to implement trauma-informed care here. And I just started laughing. (laughs) I said, no, you're not. And he goes, no, no, we are. And he told me everything they were doing. I said, okay, I believe you got a grant. I believe you sent staff to training. I believe you changed the policy. But there is no way your staff that's working in excess of 50 to 60 hours a week 
is going to implement trauma-informed care practices. They can't because, and this gets to the trauma you wanted me to talk about. When you're dealing with trauma yourself, which is perpetuated and made a hundred times worse by lack of sleep, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm talking serious lack of sleep. There is no way you can then be part of a solution to help people work through their trauma. That it, it doesn't work like that. Human beings don't work like that. When you're in survival mode, which is where a lot of these staff are, every traumatic hit they take, whether it's with their family or at work or organizationally, maybe it's about the overtime, which in my impression, my opinion, Working 60, 70 hours a week, week after week after week is trauma in and of itself, yes. right? So there, there is no way we can help other people fix their trauma when we're in survival mode. It just doesn't work like that. No. And that gets back to my social work beginnings, right? Because we, we can't get there when our staff are in the middle of dealing with trauma. And then you throw in the violent episodes, the 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 violent incidents, the near death, the the threats, all those things, maybe the threats to their family, even it just exacerbates the whole thing. Well, and, it, and so to to go ahead. Sorry, Susan, I didn't mean to do that. I just <laughs> I'm got sorry. excited at a point you made. But yeah, look, it's one of the things that um, in the book I wrote, you know, Code Blue, uh, it picks up that issue of we have enormous expectation on correction officers to be role models, to be mentors, to um, play a key role in the, uh, assisting um, prisoners not to reoffend, and yet they get traumatised by those people. And so I can't think of a context where I can go in and be a positive change agent if I'm under threat constantly by the people I'm trying to be a change agent for. And for me, that just stands out so much and and just so I'll just rave on a minute that in, you know, I can remember my early social work days there was great awareness around that people that go into social work or psychology are stuffed themselves and so the training has to unpack all their demons so that they um, uh, can work with people and the, the concept of transference of trauma which you know as you know in counseling circles has been uh, awareness for 150 years and, and so for us to think that an officer can spend 15 years working in the prison system and not experience the transference of the trauma from a traumatised group of people that are in prison right. to, to them and then still expect them to be able to provide this independent, um, uh, well-informed approach, I, I can't understand it, how we could think that they could do it. And that's why I really connect with what you're saying, that... You're exhausted, you're sleep deprived, you're getting exposed to trauma all the time, you've got people threatening to kill your wife and kids and all the other stuff that happens. And yet we still kind of go, well, they're the main people that are there to reform the prison population. So we're really interested in your yeah. comments on that. Yeah. Well, and, and to build upon that, we're, we're paying you to do that job. We're yes. paying you to be a role model. And in some, in some agencies, they're paid very, very well. That doesn't mean they're succeeding there either, right? No. The money doesn't make up for the trauma hits. I, I wrote an article, I don't know, five or six years ago that Katerina published with Desert Waters called Just Call It Trauma. And my stance in that article was we cannot begin to address the trauma until we're at least willing to call it trauma, mm -hmm. right? 
It's like, it's like, it's everything else. It's just part of the job. It's what we get paid for. It's no big deal. It wasn't even a thing. I've already forgot about it. All those things our culture says about what any normal person outside of corrections would call trauma is the way we dealt with it by denial, right? Yes. So of course we're not going to deal with it if we can't even put the label on it. So my stance at that point, and I really believe this, is the first thing we have to do is we've got to acknowledge it for what it is. We have to begin calling it trauma before we can even get to step two. Yes. Because you can't get to step two until you've actually put the right label on it, right? You know, so that's a huge part. And there's a lot of places in this country and probably in Australia too where we're still not there. We're still not willing to call it trauma, right? We're not we're not willing to label it because when you call when you admit something's traumatic to you. That means you were vulnerable. That means they got through your outer defenses, if you will, right? But back to that role modeling piece, it's in probably every agency has it in their policy somewhere that our job is to role model positive behavior, right? No matter how you word it, something like that. Again, you cannot begin to heal or help other people heal or see a different way if you can't keep your eyes open, if you can't keep focused, if, you've ju- if you're worried about being physically assaulted, if you're worried about getting feces thrown on you, if you're worried, you know, whatever it is. And all those things we have, we have normalized in our business as being no big deal. That's what you get paid for. That's, it's, really, it's really not that big a deal, right? And one of the other things that happened in my career that shaped who I am a lot was I was in my mid-30s. I was at the level of major, and I was assaulted by an inmate and beat half to death. That kind of really opened my eyes to a few things, right? Because because I was the communicator. I could talk my way out of anything, I thought. And people that got into use of forces, that got assaulted, they just weren't doing it right, right? Well, now I'm being assaulted, and I'll never forget as I'm getting my head beat into the wall thinking, but wait, let's talk about this. (laughs) And and realizing I didn't even get a chance to use my communication skills. It was such a stupid thing to think, right? But but that really kind of changed my focus that sometimes we're just in the wrong place or said the wrong Mm. thing to the wrong inmate in the wrong circumstances. And as a result of that, that was the mid-90s, there are still physically things I cannot do in my life as a result of that assault. So I, I lost pieces of who I was yes. as a result of that assault. How, how did you? And, and I, I can't get those back. No, how, uh, Susan? How how did you sort of process that? You know, in a way that is almost the brutality of reality. Of that, here's yeah. a situation that you you didn't even get an opportunity to try and communicate. You know, through. How did you personally recover from that? Well, a couple of different things. Again, at that point in time, I was the first woman in our system that was seriously assaulted, that anybody could remember. Now, maybe 60, 70 years before, but probably not because there probably weren't women around inmates at those days. So, So I had a double whammy. I was married to an officer. He was a sergeant, I think, at that point. I was this woman icon that I had everybody watching me, whether I was ever going to return to work, first of all, and how I was going to handle it. And then I, on an individual level. So I had to process mm. all three of these things at the same time. 
and kind of keep my keep my act together a little bit. So it was it was a very difficult time. Um, coming back to work, I remember more than one person say, "I can't believe you even came back to work at all." Right. And, and I, and I guess as an individual, I never thought that was really a choice, I guess, you know, I remember I got out of the hospital and I was at home and I was laying in bed and I was talking to a relative of mine that still lives on a Western Kansas farm. And he tells me, he says, you know what you have to do, right? And I, and I knew what he was going to say. And I said, yes, I got to get back on the horse. You know, if a horse throws you off, the first thing, I don't care if your leg's broken, the first thing you do is you get back on that horse because you want that horse to know who's boss, right? Mm. So that's what this person who had not, no information about the prison system is telling me, you know, you don't really have a choice. You got to get back on that horse. So I went back to work kind of on autopilot because I had to get back on that horse, right? Yes. So then I got hit with all these, oh my gosh, I can't believe a woman got beat up and I can't believe a woman who got beat up came back to work. So I'm dealing with all that baggage, if you will. Yes. I'm trying to process it not only with myself, but with my corrections officer husband who has really specific feelings about what's happened. And then I have to have to process this as an individual. And I'd like to say, Oh, I did a fabulous job of that, but I'm sure I made some really serious blunders along the way. I did continue to work for another 20 years after that, was it 20, you know, a substantial yes. amount of time, 15, maybe 25, maybe, but, but getting through all that. And that really goes, I wasn't special. Maybe the woman part was different, but most of us, when we deal with trauma, we're not dealing with it just on one level either. You know, there's all these different layers that have to be dealt with and you still have to pay the bills and get the groceries yes. and get the kids to school. And, and most of us deal with trauma like that. We have all these layers that still have to be dealt with, but we also have to keep living. Yes. And, and that's what makes recovering from any kind of trauma, first of all, if we're not even calling it trauma, and secondly, if we have more than one or two areas of attack, if you will, that you have to kind of reconcile it, it was it was very very difficult. Yes, very a lot, difficult. A lot of officers have shared with me over the years that after, you know, a major assault like that, that it it brings home to them the the risk uh, to themselves. Um, it 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 just alters the whole attitude to the emotion of being assaulted like that. Um, and the fact that, well, that could have gone in a very different direction and, and a lot of officers take a long time to, to, and then of course, coming back, you, you, you're going back into the situation where it could happen again and, and it could be worse. Um, how, how, can you remember how you dealt with that? The reality of, I can be seriously injured in this job and, and that it could have been worse. Boy, that's a really tough question. First of all, it was a long time ago, but but I don't think I ever let go of the realization about how dangerous this can be. Mm. Out, out of nowhere kind of dangerous yes. too, right? I mean, this wasn't a use of force where I went in expecting trouble, right? Yeah. And so, so understanding that probably made me a much more protective parent. And I use the word protective in a positive way, but it my daughters who are adults now would probably tell you 
that I really clamp down on their freedom because yes. if this can happen to me in a controlled environment, then what can happen to them for crying out loud, right? I certainly took that into the world with me. I know my husband and I took that into the world with us, but it also made going to work much more, um, I want to say almost autopilot, that, that I wasn't the kind, communicating, compassionate corrections employee that I was before, maybe ever. Yes. Maybe that that part got shelved somewhere because when you're getting your head slammed into a concrete wall, you have a lot of time to think, unfortunately. And maybe that just never got back entirely. No. Susan, that is... You know, I used to... Sorry, keep going. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that is such a powerful reflection. Um, and, and I don't think um that how you describe that is really understood and uh, you know the, often in these these incidents there's a lot of support there's a lot of you know ring these people or how you're going you know how I, I don't think that is really understood in terms of how life-changing those moments mm -hmm. are no matter what you do you know <laughs> um right. and so right. sorry I interrupted you but um it's just such a powerful, of, I was never quite the same after that. And and maybe I was a right. bit not as compassionate. Maybe I couldn't open myself up to that as much again. Mm. Um, uh, it, it, you know, yeah. we were just in the beginning of our SISM team, our critical incident response team built on that Mitchell model, right? Mm. And so we did a SISM debriefing with everybody that had anything to do with this incident. And I will never forget what one of the SISM people told us, told, told me. They, they started telling me this story about how this person found this snake on the road and it was a pretty neat looking snake. So he put it in a box and took it home and made it his pet, right? Well, eventually the snake bit him and, and he couldn't believe it. And so he's telling somebody else, you know, he's taking care of this snake and he's been, been so attentive to its needs and yada, yada, yada. He just can't believe this snake bit him. And this person turned to him and said, but that's what snakes do, right? And, and I internalized that. And I bet any inmate I ever had an interaction with after that, the interaction was different. Yes. Because I understood now that that's what inmates do, right? Given a chance. Now, Obviously, that isn't where we want our correction staff, right? <laughs> we don't want our correction staff categories and all inmates as capable of unprovoked violence at any time. But to think they aren't, we're kind of fooling ourselves maybe too, because I wasn't prepared for that, not in the situation where it occurred. And so I don't think I was ever as open with inmates, certainly after that. I, I got to tell you, it increased my compassion with staff dramatically, mm -hmm. especially when I became associate warden and warden, to where any little thing, I was at their door at the hospital room, I was checking up on them. So it really increased my awareness of what would be going on in their life, right? So I, I, I guess that's a huge positive from that, really, because I understood this wasn't just getting something thrown on you. This wasn't just whatever the incident was, right? That there's feelings that go along with that. And they need to be attended to. So I was probably much more attentive 
to any staff issue after that. I guess that's a real positive from that. Well, I, I, I guess it's that, um, you know, when you've lived it yourself, you know, it gives you an insight yeah. into, wow, this is what an officer goes through when, when they have, mm-hmm. have this level of assault. And I remember interviewing Neil, who I interview in, in my book, um, and at, w- at one point he, he's an officer, he'd been an officer for 33 years and, and left because of PTSD. And he talked about after he'd been seriously assaulted by a prisoner and that he, I think he was back at work and he said, he, I was just screaming. I was just screaming at the bib, 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 bib pricks that I've got in my prison. And he sort of said, I wasn't really even yelling at the person that did it to me. I just hated all of them for what they'd done to me. And I was really quite moved, you know, in terms of, and you mentioned, you know, you've got injuries from that, you know, that it's not, uh, it's a trauma that's, you know, mental and physical. And it just was that anger. And he just really, at the end of the day, didn't know what to do with it. He said, I didn't want to go and smash the prisoner. I didn't want to go and smash another prisoner, but he hurt me. And I was angry and I had nothing I could do mm-hmm. with it. Um, did, did, you know, yeah. is, is that a, you know, something that, you know, you obviously had to, this person has hurt me and damaged me forever in a way. And yet, right. um, you know, like a snake that bit me, you know, I don't know. How did you go about kind of being able to move forward yeah. from that, you know? Right. Well, I got to tell you the the absolute worst part of that incident was the look on my husband's face when he arrived, because he was on duty at another facility. Yes. And they called him, of course. The look on his face when he walked into that ER, that was the absolute worst part of the whole thing. Yes. Because the look on his face was a combination of anger and terror, right? And, And I'll never forget that as long as I live, right? So I don't know how you deal with it, except you put one foot in front of the other. Yes. And you call it trauma and you acknowledge it. And I did a lot of this, especially with other staff when they had something go on. I've told this story probably 150, 200 times, right? But, but sharing, the, sharing the trauma, letting people, other people label what's happened to them, worse or better from what I yes. went through as trauma, and talking to the employees that, that are that the family members, whether they're also employees or not. But all those pieces are part of that. But we had young children, and it's also that I have to keep moving. They've got to go to school. they got to do this. And it really helped put structure around it. Yes. But the, our system at the time really gave me time to work that through. And if I needed th- – this happened on my birthday when I was 34 <laughs> years old, right? And so for 10 years, I refused to go to work on my birthday. And they kind of let me get away with that. And I think they even paid me for being there on my birthday. I think I told them I'm not coming to work and I'm not taking leave. So you figure it out, right? So they kind of gave me some of that um, support to kind of work through it, even a couple of years later, you know, that, that idea that let's call it trauma. I wasn't shearing away from that. I wasn't backing away from that. I would tell people even then he damn near killed me. And those are words we don't often say in in relationship to things that happen to us. So, and I've had more than one doctor in in that period 
come in and say, I can't believe he didn't stop your heart when he, when he, he just landed a punch into my chest that it was just really unbelievable. The, the bruise I had on my chest for months afterwards, right? Doctors I'd see two, three weeks later, I can't believe he didn't, he didn't, it didn't stop your heart is what they would say. Mm-hmm. Or I can't believe he didn't kill you, that type of thing. And so I started using those words when I talked to people about it. And what it did is it kind of put it in perspective to me. I wasn't diminishing it. Something bad did happen. Mm-hmm. And really encouraging other staff that didn't start using those words. You know, were you were you were you close to death? Was it was it a th- real threat to your family? How close? You know, all those things. Mm. And those aren't things we were doing too much then, because we were tough corrections people, and nothing yes. hurts us, nothing gets to us. We're not vulnerable, right? And we we can't have it both ways. We can't have it. We're not vulnerable. Nothing gets to us, and he <laughs> damn near killed you type yes. thing. You can't have it both ways. So you kind of have to pick a side, kind of thing. Yes. And again, getting back to just even labeling it as trauma, mm-hmm. as a traumatic event, is a first step we have not accomplished everywhere yet. Yes, and that it can happen to you. It can happen to the person next to you. It can happen to anybody. Right. Um, that do do you feel? And obviously, you've gone on in your in your corrections career. Do do you feel? that people in those responsible positions have listened to the story, have have sort of, have you been able to shift some thinking about this isn't simple, this is complex, you know, this is people's lives. I, I think and, so. One of the things I did towards the end of my career, like I had maybe a year left, we brought Katerina in to the Colorado Department of Corrections and started the program, the Corrections from Corrections Fatigue to Fulfillment Program in Colorado And the very first thing we did is we got all the management level staff, over 100 people in one room with Katerina to start this, to kind of kick it off. And I was really worried about it. I'm thinking this is never going to work. This is going to be terrible, right? And and she had a way of kind of cutting through that. And all of a sudden, practically just about everybody in the room, probably 98% of the people in the room, had been officers or teachers or nurses or first line people, right, in our system. And she was able to get to that and start reframing the words they were using about stuff they had endured. And I think it was a great way to kind of make it real. You know, we kind of took off our intellectual management hat that it was something we just have to implement and deal with for our staff. And we started basically, we have to implement and deal with it for you, for the management first, mm. before we can even go to the officers, right? And looking back on it, it was brilliant. I don't know whose idea it was to do that. I'm sure it wasn't mine because I thought it was a terrible idea, right? <laughs> because I thought this is going to end in disaster is what I thought. But but it didn't. And I think it really kind of peeled it, like peeling an onion almost. Yes. It kind of took that first layer off. To where we could actually see what we're talking about here. So now you've got these management level people leaving the room saying things like trauma, yes. saying things like unintended effects or lasting effects or skewing my worldview or, or whatever piece of it it is, right? Maybe even using the words corrections fatigue for the first time in their career because they hadn't heard it before. Yes. This was per, pretty early on in Katarina's work in this area. And so, so I think it kind of changed how for at least that group of people, that group of management staff for several years, it kind of changed how things 
were dealt with it, they, the way we talked about it. Yes. And and I'm a big believer the talk has to come first, right? Yes. You have to start changing the way we talk about it before we're going to change anything else. Yes. And and I've used that in a lot of different areas and corrections, but this is probably one of the most important ones. I actually have other staff at my rank. I'm now probably at that point, I think I was a warden. Yeah, I would have had to have been a warden. I have other wardens now talking about traumatic events of their past and using those terms, right? Mm. And, and that was a huge beginning. I don't know that that culture shift is still in effect in the Department of Corrections in Colorado. I don't have any reason to know one way or the other really with that. But, but it was a huge starting point. And I think that's we've got to start, even if we don't believe it, we've got to start mm. talking it. We've got to start saying it, you know, because well, otherwise we're never going to get to believe. And, and I guess it's the, the connecting with the emotion of the experience that, all officers right. go through and I've only ever had one prison take on the correction fatigue um, training. No, no one else will look at it. Um, and it was interesting to have the experience of delivering it and it was a rural prison and I think I did about four sessions and they were all senior, senior middle, they weren't leadership, but they were middle uh, officers that had a lot of officers under them. And out of the 40 or more officers that did it in the, I forget where, but in the evaluations, all of them put themselves somewhere on the correction fatigue uh, continuum somewhere, all of them. Right, right. Not one right. said, no, I don't think I experience any trauma. <laughs> and that really came right. home to me that, uh, but then uh, no one's talking about it. No one's talking about emotional reactions to these things. And even at times when, you know, as you know, very emotional traumatic situations where you're not physically in danger, but you're witnessing some pretty horrendous stuff, and it's just not right. just not talked about, other than at critical incidences. Um, you know, the other piece of that that's kind of missing, and Katarina and I have talked about this a little bit, although we haven't got there yet, is the retired people. Mm. What I have seen, because now I live in a community with a whole lot of retired corrections people, in addition to people still working in corrections. You can't. There's no social group I'm in that doesn't include somebody else that's retired from corrections, right? And to listen to them processing out their trauma years later, mm. where there isn't the threat of being felt less than or being judged or not really, not a big threat, right? That's been the real amazing part, the real eye-opening part to me, because they, they've got nothing to gain or lose now, right? And to have people start talking about how they still, when they go by the prison complex, their gut tightens. Or how we just had an escape the other day. He wasn't out very long, maybe six hours. So he wasn't a particularly good escapee. But we just had that in this town, right? And people talking about that, that that pucker factor, we call it here sometimes. Of, of, oh my gosh, when I heard that report or that whistle blew or when I saw the search team, it took me back to whatever. And the stories come out. So listening to that from the retired people, the people that have survived and got out, right, mm. has been really eye-opening. And I wish I could capture, and we, Katarina and I have talked about ways of kind of capturing that a little bit, because the deprogramming, I've been retired for over 10 years, just over 10 years, right? Which is a decade, right? Yes. And and to, to live a decade after working 30-some years in corrections is, isn't a feat unto itself, right? 
But but every once in a while, I still have that trauma reaction that I have to deal with again. And it's because of like the escape or it's because of um, maybe a certain thing brings back, you know, an instance or maybe another retiree is telling me about an instance. Mm. And so dealing with that, dealing with that trauma after the fact, too, for a lot of years after the fact really kind of spurred me on to write that article that I talked about several years ago, just call it trauma, because finally I got people that were in my situation. They were retired. They were out of the culture. They were, you know, on and on and on. And they're starting to use that T word. And I saw how powerful it was to start labeling it correctly, you know, and that was just huge to me. Well, and, and, and that whole retired population, you know, there's lifelong consequences of, of the work mm-hmm. uh, in all frontline sort of work. Just a bit of a personal question. How do you feel it has changed you? You know, what, what looking back now, you know, being 10 years out of it, although I know you're still very involved, but how, how do you feel it's changed your life direction? Well, that's kind of hard to answer because when I came into corrections, I was just almost 21 years old, right? So a lot of people I've talked to, I've asked that question of, and they started in corrections maybe in their 30s or their late 20s or their 40s or a couple even in their 50s, right? And so the the change was pretty dramatic. So I come into this as my first real grown-up job, right? You know, professional job. And I stayed here and I stayed through to retirement. So when I think about the trajectory my life might have took, it's all pretty, you know, it's kind of guesswork. But what I will tell you is after I retired, the last two years of my employment, and then the year after I retired, I worked on earning my PhD, and I did complete my doctoral degree, right? But so I was in a group of people that weren't like me, right? <laughs> they they. I was the only person they ever even knew that worked in a prison, right? Let alone, you know, I'm a warden at that point, right? So what I got is I got a really, it was a cohort thing. So that means the 12 of us went through all two years all together. So we became pretty, a pretty tight knit group. So I got this whole support system as I'm getting ready to retire that kind of grounded me and brought me back to reality And not everybody thinks like that, right? Not every, like I would say something every once in a while, not all the time, but every once in a while. And the whole class would be just staring at me with their mouth open. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) it's my prison showing. You know, that was our joke. Is my prison showing again, right? So, So that actually helped me kind of transition out. It also kind of brought me back to reality. It also educated them. They, they learned, they probably have stories still. I learned some stuff from their work environments too, obviously. But I have been told over and over by people in that group that the things they learned from me, they never knew they were things they needed to learn, right? Mm. And so, so this idea of having that external group, I had it kind of artificially given to me, right? And it was such a value to me. And so I have told people, it's part of the corrections fatigue class. I have told people since the 80s doing this job, find some friends that don't do this work and hang on to them. You need them. You need people that don't think like us, right? Because that is a huge part of keeping grounded in reality. It's a huge part of processing through trauma. 
And it's a huge part of recovery afterwards. I call it, I tell people, my husband and I ever once in a while say we're, we're corrections people in recovery. We're trying to figure out, you know, how to live again, right? So that, that finding those, that group of people that cares about you and doesn't have any idea what you've just endured the last 20, 30 years is important for retirees, but it's also important for people that are currently working. Yeah. And, and again, yeah. I like I, I live in prison town, Colorado, right? So it's really hard to find people that don't work in the prison here to be friends with. So every once in a while I find a friend and then eventually that friend would go to work in the prison. So I'd have to go find another friend, right? <laughs> so that was kind of our joke, like, oh, no, she's mine or he's mine. You can't have him, you know, type thing. But so it takes work because you know what it's like. We, as human beings, we gravitate towards people who are like us, Right. And, and it's just part of our human nature, I guess, gravitating towards people who are like us. So again, in corrections, we do that. And we have to, we have to find those people that anchor us, whether it's in the school or in the community or in your neighborhood or the mailman for crying out loud, whatever it is, try to find somebody that's going to anchor you outside of this environment and hold on to them and listen to them, not just have them and put them on a shelf kind of thing, right? Mm. Oh, it's a great point, Susan. And, you know, our police here and correction officers here historically and still now have tended to form their own support networks internally because they all understand each other to a degree and then the the community doesn't. But that exposure to that dark side of the world, which you get exposed to in prisons, and absolutely you need that connection with other people that don't have that. Um, and, I, and probably you could say the same thing about any job, right? You know, if you work in a school district or in the medical field, it's important you have friends that don't work in the medical field or in the school district, maybe. But of course, the risk is so much different for our yeah. correction staff. Well, and because the thing that hits me all the time, because I don't work in a prison, I just go in and out of them, is they're locked up environments, you know. They don't go out for coffee together. They don't go and have lunch together. They don't go to meetings. They don't go into the city to attend anything. They just go to work and they're in the prison the whole day or night and never – so they don't mix with other people from other industries. Uh, They don't. They only mix with each other. They go to the bars. Um, go to bars, right? Yeah. Um, Look, Susan, we'll we'll draw it to a close. I can't thank you enough for sharing – your experiences and there's so much in this conversation that we've had that is so relevant and you know my wish really is that um through the podcast interviews i'm doing that we just start to create awareness of the need to discuss these things we need to talk about the impact on officers we need to look at if we change their jobs and it elevates the element of risk to them what does that mean and and It's just at that grassroots level of how is this impacting on you and what can we do to respond, which you've done in spades (laughs) uh, uh, in your work. And um, it's just the way to go. Can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And yeah, so you have it where we're in the morning, you're of an evening. So you have a a great evening and um, I will certainly keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Good on you, Susan. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this latest episode of Trauma from the Frontline. If you are enjoying this series, please make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you find this information valuable, we ask that you rate the show five stars. If you would like to get in touch with me, please feel free to email me at bruce at letstalkdifferently.com.au. Until the next episode, please take care. If this episode has raised any issues for you, free counselling is available through your organisation's employee assistance provider, Lifeline on 131 114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636.